I want to invite you to have a seat. As you do, I'm going to dismiss Hubtown Kids. So Hubtown Kids, uh, uh, up to uh, three to five, going to the Blue Station over here. I say this every single week, and yet I still need to look at the screen. Uh, uh, Blue Station, three to five, to my left, your right, and then Gray Station, age six, all the way up to fifth grade, uh, exiting to my right and your left. The Blue Station is going to be learning the story of the resurrection, God's wonderful surprise. Indeed, it really is a wonderful surprise. For the Gray Station, they're going to be learning the answer to this question. Since we are redeemed by grace alone, through faith alone, where does this faith come from? Since we are redeemed by grace alone, through faith alone, where does this faith come from? Well, it comes from the Holy Spirit. It's given as a gift to sinful man. I'm so glad that this piece of solid food is going to be served up for our children this morning. I would encourage you, as I do often, to be participating in the work, the meal that is being prepared for our children as they learn about this, uh, the great truths, the mysteries, as we've sung about this morning, of Jesus Christ. But for us this morning, we're going to be looking at chapter 5 of the book of Hebrews. So if you've got a copy of God's Word, your own, turn to Hebrews chapter 5. We'll be finishing up that chapter and jumping into the first few verses of chapter 6. If you want to use the hard black Bible in front of you, the the pew Bible as it were, you're welcome to use that. The, The text is going to be found on page 1190, 1190. I'm not sure if your copy of the Scriptures has headings But I want to take a moment and just kind of review what's been taking place in this wonderful letter that we have before us. It's summarized, I think, pretty well in in chapter 4, verses 14, 15, and 16, where it says, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let's hold fast our confession. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Because of that, he says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is a wonderful summary, a reminder of where we are. But then we also have Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 through 10, which we looked at not long ago, most recently here in our study of Hebrews, where it says, although he, speaking of the Son, Jesus, was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of of Melchizedek. In these first five chapters, we come to understand that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He's much greater than any angel or any creature because Jesus is not a creature. He's an eternal being that emanates from God the Father. And not only is he the eternal Son of God, But he is the great high priest. So at the end of chapter 5, we see that he is the great high priest. And how can we come to understand a little bit more about this great high priest? Well, by understanding that he, chapter 5, verse 10, is after the order of Melchizedek. And as I say that name, perhaps your eyes begin to glaze over. And you sense a yawn coming on. Up till chapter 5, he's the son. He's the great high priest. And then there's a short break that's taken at the end of 5, including chapter 6. And if you were to just remove 
Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 to 14, and then all of chapter 6, just take them and set them to the side. Not delete them, but just take them out, set them to the side, and then squish it all back together. You wouldn't miss a beat. It picks up in chapter 7, for this Melchizedek, the one mentioned in verse 10 of chapter 5, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter. And it goes on to give a little context and help us to understand exactly how Jesus is after the order of Melchizedek and what that even means. But before he goes on to explain in chapter 7, the preacher, wisely, knowing his congregation, knowing the recipients, and even knowing our own sinful hearts today, stops and addresses something that we need to know. Something that we need to see. Before he does this deep dive, chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10, explaining at great length who Melchizedek is and how this applies to Jesus, he knows that he's got to do some work. He's got to address something with us. That's sort of the context of Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 and following. So if you've got your copy, I encourage you to read with me. Starting in verse 11, all the way to chapter 6, verse 3. This great preacher, orator, says this. About this, Jesus being after the order of Melchizedek, he says, we have much to say. And it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child, but solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Let's ask God to bless the reading of his word. Father, again, we stop and we ask that you would do what only you can do, that your spirit would help us to understand this. Father, we know that the, the truths revealed here aren't really that hard to explain, but what is challenging is our attention spans. Father, our affections, our appetites, we pray that you would change them. Father, help us to love the milk of the word. Father, help us to reach for the solid food, too. We ask all this in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen. As a teacher or a preacher, my desire is to try to understand the scriptures myself and then to present them to you in a way that would be helpful for you. In an effort to do that, I want to just point out three things that are vitally important in the Christian life. Three things that are vitally important in the Christian life, and I find them in this text. One explicitly seen, we observe the importance of loving correction. Here in the middle of his sermon, the author stops and says, I need to address something, and he does so in a very loving way. He challenges the brothers and sisters that are listening this morning and even as original recipients. He wants us to know the importance of loving correction. The Spirit does, and he demonstrates it here through this preacher. But two, we're going to see the importance of milk. The importance of milk. And finally, we'll see the importance of solid food as well. So the importance of loving correction, the importance of milk, and the importance of solid food. So first, the importance of loving correction. This observation, really, that we see here, this guy speaking to this church, wherever they are, whoever they were, it's a bit shocking for us in our culture today that there would be correction offered at all. For centuries, it was understood that truth was something outside of us that we needed to learn, understand, and submit to. Almost irrespective of culture and time and history, this idea that truth was outside of us that we needed to submit to, it reigned supreme. But it, 
in our time, in our day, our preference, our MO, it's the exact opposite. It's reported that you have the truth inside of you. It's your truth. It may not match up or, or be exactly the same as someone else's truth, but it's still somehow true for you. Whatever you feel, whatever you desire, whatever you want, it's true and it's good. And find a way to stay true to your truth. The modern independent self doesn't require, nor does it permit, correction. Especially when the correction comes from an outdated patriarchal textbook such as the Bible. And yet, the preacher here in chapter 5 isn't affected by that definition of truth. This is exactly why he is offering loving correction. To warn the individuals who would call themselves Christians of these types of errors. The preacher tenderly sees an issue and he finds the perfect time to lovingly address it. And by the way, I won't spend time to, to point all this out, but I would encourage you to, to really take some time. We began our study in the book of Hebrews by reading the entire letter in one sitting. I would encourage you, don't let that be the only time that you've ever done that. As you've grown to learn and understand some of the, the, the components of this text and the, the framework and the, and the background behind it all, how the, the logic is moving forward, I would encourage you to, to stop in our study and do it again sometime, maybe even this week, and you'll begin to see what I'm talking about. This guy is an orator. This guy knew how to capture people's attention. He knew all of the, uh, the uh, rhetorical tools that were available to him in his day and age. So he gets the people excited, understanding and, and, and looking and longing for Jesus, considering Jesus. He drops out something really, really challenging for them to understand. And then, now that he's got their attention, and they're opened up to him, he lovingly, firmly, and timely corrects them. These Jewish Christians, they needed some loving correction. They had become dull of hearing. They had become sluggish to hear. Another way to say dull of hearing would be to say that they were slow to hear. Slow to hear, which we're told not to do. We're, we're supposed to be quick to hear, slow to speak. They needed some correction. If we were just to zoom out, not to necessarily receive the correction that he is giving to the Hebrews, but if we were just to critique the way that he offers correction, what can we observe? What can we take away? How can we emulate this dear brother in our lives as we interact with one another? Well, first, let me just offer this. As you offer correction to your brother or sister, I want to encourage you to do so with the right motive. With the right motive. I believe that this man did just that. He had the right motive. There are many corrupted motives that would lead us to, in some way, offer correction to someone else. Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 21, give us some of those poor motivations that would lead us to give correction to somebody, but not in a way that honors the Lord, not in a way that brings health and vibrancy to the church. It says, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, Impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. He makes it clear there's some really poor motivations out there. Some that stick out in my mind here that maybe you and, and I have been guilty of. That is offering correction motivated out of rivalries. Offering correction motivated out of jealousies or envy. These sorts of things have no place in the corrective actions of one brother or sister to another in the Christian church. We've got to recognize the need for others needing correction. But first, before we offer that correction, we have to consider our motivation for doing so. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 29 says this. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. 
Ephesians 4.29 is such a fantastic scripture when we consider how we are to offer correction to one another. And I love that it gives us this contrast of corrupting talk and building up talk. Corrupting means to destroy. It means to weaken. It means to tear down. And building up is obvious. It's edifying. It's raising up. It's further securing. And what's the point? How does this apply to our motives? Well, we consider ourselves, what is our point in offering correction? Is it to crush? The thing that you may have to offer as correction, it may be true. But is your motivation to crush out of jealousy, envy, and hatred? Or is your desire, is your motive to build up? Have you ever been corrected in a way that it was clear to you and maybe to those around you that the motives of those people correcting you or that person correcting you was not pure? Maybe they did it out of anger. Maybe they did it out of jealousy or in rage. Maybe you're considering others and how they've corrected you, and maybe it's time for us to consider how, how, how you for, to consider how you've corrected others. In what way or manner? What was your motive in doing that? I believe here that this preacher has shown us that it's right for us to, have, to offer correction in a way that would build up. We've dismissed our kids a moment ago, and so they can't give us the knowing look. Parents, when you offer correction to your children, ask yourself, what is my motivation for doing that? Is my motivation to tear somebody down because they've somehow attacked me and so now I'll attack them? Is it because I'm embarrassed and that's why I'll offer correction to my child? Is it anger? Is it vindication? Or is your correction timely and loving with a concern for the well-being of your child, hoping that God will use it to edify them. One of the things that we can see clearly here, here is that our motivation should be to build up. To build up. But another thing that we see here, I've alluded to it a moment ago, is that we should consider to offering correction at the right time. I love what it says in, again, Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupt communication come out of your mouth. No tearing down, but only that which is building up as fits the occasion. I love that. You see, we're not just to go around speaking the truth in love in any way, shape, or form, but we're to do so in a way that is fitting. Proverbs chapter 25, verses 11 and 12, I love them. I remember hearing a sermon. This is one of the few sermons that I can remember from uh, my life before the age of 10. It was a Sunday night sermon. I don't know how I can remember that. Sat in hundreds of them. The scripture said, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. Like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. Notice the illustration. Fitly spoken words are like apples of gold and settings of silver. It's the idea of a piece of artwork. Beautiful, rightly arranged, everything sewn together and, and placed together in such a way that it would gather the light. It would display beauty. It's not angrily thrown together in an instant. Urgency does not rule art. It's wisely crafted with the intention of gaining a listener. Each word smithed together so as to gain a listener and not to quickly win a war. Is that it's thrown together. The nutrients are there. Everything you need to survive seven days at camp, out in the woods. It's all there in that hash or whatever it is. But it's not sewn together. It's not seasoned in a way that would cause it to be appealing. And that's why our children come back to us malnourished and sickly. A healthy church with healthy Christians, it, it has to learn to offer criticism to each other in a way, to offer correction to each other in a way that is born out of the right motives and at the proper time. This is what we see here. We can learn a lot from this preacher just by observing the way that he interacts with this congregation. 
Here we see specifically, though, not just the way that he offers correction, but we see what he offers correction about. What's the context here? What's he saying? What's his accusation? He's saying that they are immature. He's saying that they are still drinking milk when they should be eating meat. It's time for them to start taking a little bit of the solid food in there. And yet their appetites are still unappealed and desiring to stay with the milk. And so the second observation I want you to see this morning, though, is the importance of milk. You may say, well, isn't that a little bit contradicting? The preacher here is wanting this congregation to to move away from milk onto the solid food. But don't misunderstand what he's saying. He's still saying that milk is important. There are aspects of your development that for you now are frankly embarrassing. If you were to think about how you got to where you are right now, it's sort of embarrassing, isn't it? Developing emotionally for you maybe required a blankie. Some of you aren't looking me in the eye right now. Maybe it required a passy, and maybe that passy that you used, maybe you carried it along with you a little bit longer than you should have. Or maybe that TV show that you really, really enjoyed that now you wish that it didn't exist and that those VHSs or DVDs or whatever it was, was, well, non-existent. And that nobody really knew that these things were a part of your development as a human being, developing who you are as a person. That blankie is vitally important. That passive was important at least for your parents. And so was milk. And this is what the author is saying about milk. Milk is very important. Each of us get our start on the stuff. It's of primary importance in the development of a human being. Along the same lines as milk, we're given this term elementary doctrine. Look at verse 6. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. It may seem here at first glance that the preacher is, is speaking disparagingly, disparagingly about the basics of the faith. Hey, that's kid stuff. Hey, let those basic elementary doctrines just kind of be set to the wayside, almost like you, you know, in the same place where you put your blankie and your pacifier and your teddy and all those other things. That's not what he's saying here. When we think of it in terms of milk as it's illustrated, yes, it comes across as if milk maybe shouldn't be valued. It's a thing of the past. However, notice the writer then switches illustrations. He says, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. A couple weeks ago, maybe a, maybe a couple months ago, some earth movers showed up on our street. And I wasn't really quite sure what their purpose was, but they began to work in a lot there on our street, just a few houses down. The workers began to carve out of the earth a foundation. I still wasn't really sure at that first little bit that what they had in mind, what they were intending to to build. We looked on for some time wondering what they would build and what would be there on our street. And over time, it became clear again that they were building a new home. You see, we see the importance of laying a foundation properly. If the foundation of the building is weak or wrong, the rest of the foundation will go poorly. If you start anywhere else on a structure other than on the foundation, you've messed up. If you begin to frame up the walls and then you say, well, I'll pour the concrete later, you've messed up. It has to come first. It's of primary importance. It's it's essential. And if it's wrong, if it's weak, that foundation, everything else will go wrong. You can't move on the walls, you can't move on the floors, you can't install sinks and mirrors until the foundation is solid. So the preacher here is not necessarily rushing the foundation, but he's saying, I think it's time to move on from milk, which is the foundation. I think it's time to move on from the actual foundation of this structure onto the next thing. You see, he's indicating that there's been sufficient time, there's been sufficient teaching, there's been sufficient work on this project of the foundation being laid, the foundation of their faith as a church. It's time to move on to the next project. 
Imagine how frustrated you would be if you'd saved up your money, hired a contractor, found a plot of land, and began to to break ground. Maybe you're out there with your shovel. Somebody takes a picture of you as you dig the first little bit, and then you put Instagram away, get out of their way, and they actually begin to do the work, and you're so excited. They've begun the actual work. They, that lot on my street is yours, and they've dug out the footers, and they've poured the foundation, and you're so excited, and you come back the next day, and you think, man, this is incredible, and they've done a little bit more work, and the next day, a little bit more work. After two weeks, though, they're still just kind of tinkering around on the foundation. At this point, you're jumping up and down, and you're thinking, what is taking them so long? Oh, don't worry. It's very important that your foundation be solid. Well, I get that. It's been two weeks. You don't think you can move a little bit faster? Oh, no, sir. No, we want this to be just right. Months go on. It keeps going by. He's out there just polishing and looking and measuring and drawing different things and noodling on the project. You want them to make some progress. You've said, there's been sufficient time given to you to build this foundation. Let's move on. You've got it right. And maybe in that particular situation, the contractor has found himself to to be comfortable where he's at. Not wanting to move on. Not wanting to take the next step. You see, the purpose of a foundation is not a foundation. Do you get that? You don't build a foundation so that you can say, hey, I've got a foundation. This is incredible. Look at this. You build a foundation so you can build up. You go down so that you can go up. That's the purpose of a foundation. The same thing with milk. The purpose of a, of a baby bottle, the purpose of, of, of nursing a child is not to nurse a child, but to bring them to a place of nutrition, nutrition and health to where at one point in their life, they too can feed themselves. That's the hope. And many moms here said Amen. I don't want to lay another foundation. The the idea is not to leave the foundation. How silly would it be if we worked very hard on this particular foundation, all the everything was done just so, and then we moved on to another site and began to build the walls. No, the walls, the flooring, it needs to be applied to the foundation and not somewhere else. And so this preacher is saying, we're not going to lay another foundation. We're not going to go back to repentance from dead works. We've already established that. You know that. There's not something else. This is the foundation. Faith towards God. This is the foundation. Easily we understand the foundation of our faith is to stop trying to earn God's acceptance and love and turn to Jesus, who is the divine provision of salvation. That's the foundation of the Christian faith. What is it? What's Christianity all about? Stop trying to earn God's love and receive it. Jesus saves sinners. That's the foundation of our faith. Not Jesus saves righteous people and begins to like them and and not be so annoyed with them as they get even more righteous. No, it's that God would save a wretch like me. That's the foundation of our faith. We're not going to lay another foundation, the preacher's saying. Faith in God believing that what he says is true. The promise that he offers that the soul that sins, it shall die and the the one who repents shall be saved. This is the promise of God. And we have faith in that. God's provision for us. These other statements about the foundation, these six statements, repentance repentance from dead works, faith toward God. What about instruction from washings or instruction about washing? We're not really, honestly, I'm not exactly sure what that means. I'm going to continue to chew on that and, and uh, chew on this solid food here. But I, I've come to the conclusion that I think it's a reference to uh, the different baptisms. It's, it's, it's in the plural. Instruction about washings, not instructions about baptism or washing. It probably has a, something to do with the, the confusion that would have been on the mind of a, of a Jewish Christian convert. They would say, well, there was the baptism of the Gentile. If they wanted to come into Judaism, there's that one. And then there's the baptism of John, and then there's the Christian baptism post-repentance and placing faith in Jesus. I believe the instructions about washing for them was vitally important, that they knew the differences between the three and how one was actually not the other. Foundationally, it seems that they had been taught this. They're not going to move on to some other foundation. This is still part of their foundation, but they still need to move on. 
Instructions about washing, the laying on of hands. This is a reference to how someone is set apart for certain work, like missionary work or eldership. It's in connection with receiving of the Holy Spirit as we see throughout the book of Acts. What about the part of the foundation that refers to the resurrection of the dead? Both Jews and Christians believed in the resurrection of the dead. We see that as Martha speaks to Jesus there at the graveside of Lazarus. Oh, I know that, I know that he'll live in the resurrection. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. You see, Martha was saying, I, I know, Jesus, that there's a resurrection. I'm a good Jew. I know that that's coming. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Yeah, you're right. That's true. There is a resurrection, but there's another resurrection, too, for the Christian. There's a re- resurrection from the dead, physically speaking, and there's a resurrection of spirit as well. You see, he's saying, you're dead in your sins, but now you're alive in Christ. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead in the sense that because of his resurrection, we have victory over death, we have victory over sin, and now we can live new and holy lives. This is very simple, foundational stuff. And then this last piece, eternal judgment. This is the future for those not trusting in Christ for forgiveness of sins. But also in eternal judgment, we are eternally judged righteous because of Christ. And so we know after the judgment, standing before God, everyone will do that in their life. It's appointed unto man once to die. After this, the judgment, those who are apart from Christ will be eternally punished. And those who are in Christ will receive life eternal. These six foundational pieces are not something that they're to run away from. It's not something that they're to to abandon as you have your bottle. It's something that we're to build on as the foundation of our faith, but we're not to stay there. Often in my work as a counselor, biblical counselor or a pastor, as I walk with a brother or sister that's facing a difficulty or a struggle in their life, hoping to defeat sin or believe what's true, as I'm walking with them, I'll often notice a a defect in their foundation a misunderstanding or a misapplication of the gospel in their lives, able to see it because I'm not in it, but looking from the side, walking alongside, helping them to see where their issues are coming from. And so often the trouble that they're facing is not with the roof, but the underlying reasoning. It's not with the wall. It's not with the shifting of the floor. The underlying reasoning is that there's a settling in the corner of their foundation as it relates to the gospel. Some of us in our walk as Christians, we want nothing more than to be thought of as more mature than we really are. We all went through that as children, didn't we? How old are you? Well, I'm six, well, in like nine months. I'm six, and in nine months I'll be six years old. Like, seriously? You know, when you're like, you just graduated from, you know, Eighth grade, and somebody's like, uh, well, what grade are you in? You're like ninth. Oh, so you're going into tenth? Uh, no, I'm actually going into ninth. We've all done that. We want to be considered as older than we really are. We want to scurry and hurry so that people will not think that we're as immature as we really are. And the reality is, you might think that the preacher here is saying, hey, throw that bottle away and move on. Hey, you don't really need to lay a good foundation and you don't really need to work hard on that. Just go on and move on to the greater, grander things. And the reality is if we give in to that lesser motivation to hurry the foundation and to abandon it before we're really ready, it's just gonna cause problems later on in our lives. If we truly don't understand that we have received salvation not by anything that we've done, but by the grace of God extended to us while we were still sinners. If you don't understand that as a Christian, your life is going to be full of difficulties. That foundation has got to be solid. In our lives as Christians, if we forget that the future is not here, that this will all burn up one day, And that we don't have to scramble to make sure that we get all that we can in this life and live for our own joys and pleasures in this life, but that our joy and pleasure is secure in Christ for all of eternity. That's our future. 
that's the eternal judgment that's before us. If we don't understand that, if that's not part of our foundation, then our structure, our edification will be hindered. At any rate, the most basic aspects of our life in Christ, the elementary principles are like the ABCs of faith. We can't do anything without them. They're vitally important, but that isn't where we're to stay. To illustrate that, I want you to imagine going to the piano recital of an adult who's been taking lessons for 10 years. As an adult, 10 adult year of lessons. You get the invitation and you're thinking, this is maybe my first time going to a recital for somebody at this age. And I have seen them play before. I've, I understand they really enjoy to play piano. And you're thinking, oh, this, maybe we could turn this into a date night if you're married. Or uh, maybe you're thinking, hey, this will just be a time where I can escape the children for a few minutes and, and really go hear some good music. And you're thinking, hey, after 10 years of playing piano, I can't imagine the stack of, of beginner books to intermediate to expert books that they've gone through. I, I bet they know how to play just about everything that's ever been written for the piano. And so you're thinking, is it going to be Mozart? Is it going to be Beethoven? What will it be? And you get there and maybe you're all dressed up and it's a cold night and you've even brought flowers and maybe you're going to get dinner after or dinner before. You're thinking, this is just going to be a pleasant night. And as you sit down, this 10-year student pops their knuckles, raises their fingers, and then begins to play, three blind mice, three blind mice, see how they run. They go on with that a little bit and then they think, oh, this is not as impressive Maybe they'll want to see that I know my scales. And so then this 10-year student begins to dance through the scales. Do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, da. And then they say, oh, I've done all the major keys. Now I'll go to some of the minor. Really, really impressive stuff. And I'm sure you'd be kind. I'm sure that you wouldn't laugh out loud as you did just now. But I know that you'd be asking, this is foundational, Where's the good stuff? They've got to know how to play three blind mice. They've got to know their scales. They've got to know how to read music. It's important, but where's the good stuff? Where's the stuff that's built up? And that's what brings us really to the third section of the sermon today. You see, the, 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 the preacher is not saying, hey, it's stupid to play scales. It's stupid that you know how to just learn how to read music. No, he's saying that's vitally important. Don't rush those things. But you, some of you, are, you're, you're beyond that. And you've become dull of hearing. You've become lazy. You don't want to move any farther. Your affections have really just been lessened and weakened. And he's saying, shame on you. Move on. Move on to greater things. Move deeper and farther in to the good stuff. And so the importance one of the third important thing that we see today is solid food. Solid food. We understand milk is vital to the beginning of your life. But you must move on to solid food. By contrast, solid food is much more difficult to process. Milk requires that you be held close and that you simply drink. Solid food requires more skills than sucking and more tools than gums. You need teeth. You need to be able to sit up. You, you need the ability to, to hand-eye coordination, to use a set of silverware. We understand really what he's getting at when he says, hey, move on in, move deeper in, get past, don't leave the elementary principles of Christ, the word of righteousness. Don't leave those things, but don't stay there. Continue to learn. Continue to grow. Verse 12, he says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. What's the benefit of eating solid food? Some of you say, well, I'm just, I'm lazy. I don't like to be a part of Sunday school. I don't, I don't really enjoy life groups. I don't really enjoy D groups. And I don't like the, the, the structure, uh, the, 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 the fencing in that uh, the, the Bible reading plans that the church offers and recommends. I, don't, I just don't like those sorts of things. What's the benefit of eating solid food anyway? Why should I read more theology? Why should I study with brothers and sisters? Well, I think the answer really is, is clearly demonstrated 
in Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. You're welcome to turn there. I'll try to help you follow along just by explaining and reading here. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Colossae, and he says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope that's laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. He's basically saying, hey, things are going really good for you, church. The gospel came to you. You've heard it, and now it's bearing fruit, as it says in verse 6. It's increasing as it does among you, not just around the world, but in your church. It's increasing It's bearing fruit. There's a foundation that's been laid there. And that's been taking place, he says, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. He says, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. He's pleased, the Apostle Paul is. He's pleased that the gospel came to them and there was a foundation that was laid, the word of truth. And he says that he's seen fruit from that, but he expects it to continue to bear fruit in their lives. And that's exactly what he's praying for. He's saying, church, it's it's incredible. You've drank the milk. You've grown. There's a foundation that's been laid. And I'm praying that that work won't stop but that it will continue to build and to grow and to increase in knowledge and strength. That's what we see in the verses that are following. It bore great fruit, but he prayed that it would do more. I love how it clearly points to Epaphras. And he's saying, hey, he laid a foundation there, and he's continuing to build on that foundation and adding more to it. What is that if it's not discipleship? What, what are the benefits, you might ask, of eating solid food? It's discipleship. It's discipleship. I don't want to get too graphic. But when the writer of Hebrews is talking about adults drinking milk, if what comes to mind is like a, an adult male like with a gallon jug that he just pulled out of the fridge and he takes the red cap off because whole milk's the only kind of milk you should be drinking anyway, If that's, and you're drinking from the jug, that's not what he's talking about. It would be odd to see a five-year-old still breastfeeding, right? That'd be a little bit odd. How about a 25-year-old? That's the picture that he's painting. Don't tarry too long there. But it's important that in discipleship that you go from drinking milk to eating solid food. Why? I have a definition for you of discipleship. I didn't come up with it, but I like it. I tinkered with it a little bit, but this is it. Maybe it's on the screen. Here it is. Discipleship is the process of training people incrementally toward maturity in Christ. Discipleship is the process of training people incrementally toward maturity in Christ. And it's so vividly pictured as a mother raises a child. The child is literally brought into the world and its every need is cared for. Life is given to it and then milk. Attention to detail, caring for, loving on, and eventually nurturing this child to where they are over a period of 20 to 30 years able to do the exact same thing for someone else. It's discipleship. And we see it clearly in Jesus' commands. We've, we reference this all the time. Matthew 28, verses 19 to 20. What does our Lord, our Lord command us, our master, what does he command us to do? We say it so often we maybe forget Go make disciples of all nations. What are we to do? How are we to do that? We're to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Is that all? No. You're to teach them to observe what? Not just the gospel. Not just the foundational truths, but all. All what? All that I have commanded you. Jesus says to his disciples. 
He used to teach them all the things. Not just, not just the gospel, not just how to turn from your sin and place your faith in Jesus. No, all of those things. It's a funny thing, a, a baby holding another baby as they drink their own bottles respectively. Maybe you've seen that in your own life. Sarah and I have the privilege of, of have had the privilege of raising, uh, rearing two twins, and both of them cute as can be, and, and maternal in nature, one toward the other. And I do have memories and maybe even some pictures of one baby holding the bottle for the other as they drink their own bottle. And that's good, and it's cute, but that's not how a family is strengthened. That's not how a village sees success. We're to teach them to observe all that we have been commanded to do. We see this principle of one that eats the solid food, that used to drink only milk, now eating solid food, now spoon feeding after they had given the bottle, and now encouraging the next to eat the solid food. We see that in first, or 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul says to Timothy, you then, my child, whom I've nurtured, whom I've held, who I gave the bottle to, who I sat and propped up at the table and cut your food up into tiny pieces and fed that to you. You, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and, by the way, be strengthened, continue eating solid food, chapter, or verse two, and what you have heard from me, the things that I've fed to you, the things that I've taught to you, in the presence of many witnesses, you are to entrust that to faithful men. You're supposed to spoon feed. You're supposed to give the bottle to these other folks for what purpose? To what end? That verse ends, so that these men will be able to teach others also. Do you see the generational nature of feeding? I love that verse. It's sad though. That this church, that the writer, the preacher is, is, is speaking to, he's saying to them, you Christians, you should be ready to teach others by now. However, you're still stuck in the nursery. And he's not saying, hey, each one of you should be pastors by now. Each one of you should have planted at least three or four churches by now. Each one of you should, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, in ordinary ways, you have been taught Maybe in life group, in D group, maybe in your family, family devotions. Maybe it's happened in, in, in the grand setting of the Sunday morning gathering. At any rate, you have been taught, but now you have forgotten what you've learned. Your appetites have been lost, and you're satisfied in the nursery. His correction comes to them. It's important that you learn to eat solid food. Why? So that you can feed others what you have received. What you've learned, which by the way, that's one of the greatest ways to learn. As soon as you learn something, find somebody to teach it to. It's one of the, one of the ways I've learned as much as I have. Been kind, God's been kind enough to give me the opportunity to study the word of God and then to find time on a weekly basis, primarily here in this exact setting, to teach it to somebody else. You don't need to be a pastor to be able to do that. You don't need to be a Sunday school teacher as Chuck to be able to do that. Each of us can find a way to study something, to digest something, and then to share that with somebody else, what we've learned. Taking what you have learned and sharing it with others. It's what's happening right now. In the preaching, it's what happened earlier in the Sunday school class. It's what happened throughout the week in D groups. You say, well, I don't, I'm not a D group leader. You don't need to be a D group leader to read the scriptures, expecting that God's gonna speak to you as you read them, journaling, writing down, making some mental notes of what he has taught you, allowing it to wash over you, and then on Saturday morning or Tuesday afternoon, meeting with some other brothers or sisters and sharing with them the same thing that you have learned. Same solid food that you've been given, sharing that with somebody else. It's been said of preaching the gospel, and it's very true of discipleship, that it's just one beggar who's found bread telling another beggar where to get it. That's what discipleship is. D groups, 
life groups, scripture memory. How about personal trials? Paul, speaking to the Corinthian church, says, hey, I want you to know that God has gotten me through some serious trials and he'll get you through trials as well. And he goes on to say, I want you to know that God, he comforts you in your trials and he does that so that you can in turn comfort other people going through their trials. We don't just get a meal prepared for us, that solid food as we read the scripture, but as we walk through life with scripture in hand, the word of God leading and guiding us, even through difficult situations, and we're able to say, hey, that's a meal I didn't necessarily want to eat, but it was good for me. And I'm going to help you learn how to eat this difficult meal, how to crack that shell, and how to find the good stuff. Everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he's like a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. The practice of eating solid food, moving past a simple, standing of, a simple understanding of the gospel, that leads you to becoming skilled in the word of righteousness. The key word here is having your powers of discernment trained as you regularly exercise your mind, training your mind to be able to distinguish between good and evil. I love this definition. It's from... A dear brother in Christ, who actually I don't know, but I, I, I'm very fond of him, Tim Challies. He says this, discernment is the skill of understanding and applying God's word with the purpose of separating truth from error, right from wrong. This is discernment. It's a vital skill. And it's vastly underdeveloped in the lives of the Hebrew audience that, we're, that we are learning of this morning. And sadly, that's true of us as well. It's a skill underdeveloped. And by the way, it will never be developed apart from the Word of God. There's no replacement for you spending time ruminating, processing, chewing, meditating on the Word of God. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Again, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, declares this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It's the least that you can do. It's your reasonable response. He goes on to say, do not be conformed to this world, which, by the way, is your natural state. He says, don't do that, but be transformed. Don't be satisfied with being pressed into the mold of the world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Brothers and sisters, how are you to have your mind renewed? How are you to have your mind transformed apart from the word of God? It won't happen. The scriptures teach us this lovely, lovely truth Psalm 119, 105, your word, speaking of God, God's word is a lamp to my feet, it's a light to my path. How do you know what's true? How do you know what's false? How do you move on from the gospel and say, okay, I'm a Christian now, I've turned from my sin and placed my faith in Jesus. How do I continue to live my life? Colossians 2, 6, and 7 says, the same way that you received the Lord is how you walk in him, rooted and established in the faith. How did you receive? The word of God came to you. The spirit of God gave you faith to understand and to believe it. You responded in faith. That's exactly what we're to do now as as Christians. We're to spend time in the word of God, allowing us, allowing our minds to be sharpened, to be transformed and to be renewed day in, day out. That's why we're commanded to not avoid ourselves, but to gather on a regular basis and not just in Sunday morning gatherings, but all the time, breaking bread, encouraging one another, challenging one another, correcting one another. And on what basis? The basis of the word of God. As you're being transformed You share that with another brother and he'll be transformed. I want to end with a quick look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Quickly, 
We're going to pass through these 10 verses very briefly, but I want you to see what's taking place. I want you to see the storyline. There's a chronological order here. Verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead. Not breathing. Dead. You were following the course of the world. Think of a dead body floating in a river. That's the course of the world. And what happened? Verse 4, but God. It's a wonderful part of the story. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us when we were dead in that river, what did he do? He made us alive. Think about that. You were dead. And if you're a Christian, if you understand the word of God and you've responded in repentance and faith, you have been made alive together with Christ. And what does it say then in verse 8? For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. Don't forget just a few moments ago, twice, I told you you were dead. And the grace of God came to you and gave you life. It's his gift. It's not a result of your works so that no one can boast. Well, I chose God. I don't know why these other people won't do that. They're not as smart as me. They're not as humble as me. They're not as good as me. No, that's, this is all hogwash. God has done a work in the life of your, your, in your life, Christian. But look at what it says in verse 10. We are his workmanship. That means starting from nothing, he created you. And you were broken and he fixed you. You were dead and he brought you back to life. That's his workmanship. God's looking at it saying, I did a good job. Look what I've done. And I'm not done yet. I'm continuing to work in this guy, this, this gal's life. And it says, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Not only, Christian, are you a good work of God the Father, but you are created to do good works which God prepared beforehand, before this whole thing happened, before you were dead in that river and he made you alive, God prepared these good works beforehand. What does it say? That we should walk in them. Here's where I want to end. This is a warning passage. And we can read this passage and some of us be a little concerned. Oh, I'm dull of hearing. Is he talking about me? I've just... My appetite for, for the things of God have just kind of been quelled and, and dissipated. Is he, is he talking about me? And maybe you're even thinking as you read on through chapter 6, am I even a Christian? Some of your Bibles will say at the beginning of chapter 11 that this is a warning against apostasy. And you're like, am I an apostate? Some of you may not be able to sleep today. You'll be struggling and worrying. And the, the point of this text is not for you to say, I've got to do more works. I've got to find a way to become righteous with God. I've got to prove that I really deserve or earn it. That's contrary to everything that we see in Scripture. What we are to do as a result of this is to say, hey, he has done a work in my heart. He has taken a heart of stone, he's taken it out, and he's given me a heart of flesh. I was dead in my sins and he made me alive. He has done an incredible work in me and he has created me to do an incredible work. And I'm going to walk in that. That's the point of this passage. The main idea is this. It is the Father's will that we grow in Christ into mature disciples. That's his will for you. And if you're a Christian, do it. As you think about that, I want to ask you a couple questions, and then we'll end. Are you growing in discernment? This text is clear. You will grow in discernment in correlation with your time spent eating solid food? Are you growing in discernment? Another question, are you, are you teaching others what you've learned? You've just eaten a, a fine meal, nutritious. Who are you gonna share that with? The things that you've heard, Paul says, from me among many witnesses, commit to other people so that they can teach others also. Who are you teaching? And each of us have a platform to do that. The final question, have you become complacent in your spiritual nutrition? All of us from time to time can become complacent in our physical nutrition, especially around this time of year, eating the things that we shouldn't, not eating what we should. But how about spiritually? Have you become complacent in your spiritual nutrition?
Have you regressed in a manner of speaking back to milk only? And maybe not even so much of that. Brothers and sisters, we've got to see the value both of milk and solid food. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 25 says, hey, here's how you can continue to eat solid food. Don't stop meeting together. Come ready to eat. Come ready to eat together. That's Hebrews 10. Hebrews 3 verse 1 What are we to do together? We're to consider Jesus together. We're to think deeply about Jesus together. We're to think long and hard about the lyrics that we sing and the passages that we read. And again, we're to do that together. Hebrews 3.13, exhort one another. Share with others what you've learned and received. Apply what you know of Scripture to your brother as well, to your sister as well. This is what we've been commanded to do. It's the will of God the will of the Father, for us to grow in Christ into mature disciples. And he will empower that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that you have given us the milk of the word. Truly you have. Father, so many of us, we understand the gospel. It's been given to us. You've, you've taken heart of, hearts of stone and you've replaced them with hearts of flesh. You've given us the faith as our children are believing right now through your spirit to believe and to understand and we appreciate that. We thank you for that gift of grace. But you've not just given us milk, you've given us solid food and you've called us. You've given us the appetite to eat and you've called us to eat and we pray that we do so. Father, may as we continue to study through Hebrews, may we be a church that come to this table ready to eat. Father, may we eat together. May we encourage each other with what we have learned and what we've enjoyed and the nutrition that we've received. We ask all of these things in the name of Jesus and for his glory alone. Amen.